Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we invited your presence earlier in the service, I'm just so grateful that you would come into this place. And now as we open up your word to be encouraged, to be challenged as well, but to lift our hearts heavenward, we pray you'll send the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is AD 62, and in that environment, the Roman Empire ruled the world. In fact, as you look at this map of the rulership of the Roman Empire, you see a huge span of territory ranging from the Middle East all the way over to what we would call the area of England. And as you can imagine, that span of an empire, every once in a while, wouldn't you think a revolt would come up? Where people were like, okay, we're tired of your rule, and we would like to have at least local rulership and shake off the bondage of Rome. Well, that's exactly what happened in A.D. 62, and it happened up here in the British Isles. What we find is a local king had made an agreement with Rome that when they came through that area with their legions, that he would be their subject peaceably and not engage in warfare with them if they would allow him to sign his family the the kingdom when he died, along with the Roman Caesar. So co-rulership when he dies. But when he does begin to age, the Roman Roman Empire begins to notice that and also begins to make plans to grasp his kingdom there in that realm. He dies, his wife is left, Celtic queen, Boadicea, Boadicea, and Rome converges upon his kingdom takes her out, flogs her as the queen, and reneges on the promise as far as co-rulership and rapes all of her heir daughters that are left. That's the condition you find the enraged Celtic queen in AD 62. Once they leave, she makes plans for a revolt, and she does revolt. In AD 62, people have grown tired of Roman rule. They've been planning this revolt, and then when they attack and assault the queen and her daughters, they begin to develop rebel forces between two huge tribes up there in that area. They've gathered weapons, they've gathered supplies, they've gathered a huge army. And we're talking about an army that's not just 10,000 soldiers, a few legions. We're talking about over a hundred and some thousand warriors large. Led by this Verdicia, she begins to go down and city after city she begins to conquer along her path to go further south into the kingdom. And they're going after specifically the Roman citizens and the Roman troops. They impale the women on spikes in retribution for what happened to her daughters, and they go on down, and eventually the Roman troops come out with an army. And so you can imagine this huge barbaric force gathering towards what is modern-day London, and the Roman troops coming from the south, and they see the, modern, the, the barbaric troops, and they turn around, and they go south. She takes over modern-day London, and Suetonius, the Roman governor, rallies more troops because he knows that he's going to need a whole lot of them. And he's a smart commander, and he decides to stage the battle in a place where there would be forests to his left and to his right. There'd be a small area where the troops would be able to come through, and an open plain out there. And he's hoping that the rebel forces would take the open plain, and then they would come towards him 
in this narrow area, and he would have his legions there to, to literally hack them down as they came through that. Unfortunately for Boudicca, they have an ancient method of warfare in the Germanic tribes, and that is that your families would be behind you in wagons and any method of transportation, so that if you turn and retreat, you literally have to sacrifice your families. So they are going to war with their families behind them, and on this open plain, going right towards the Roman funnel, and in the Roman funnel, they have weapons of warfare. So here comes the barbaric tribes are coming towards the Roman funnel, and all of a sudden javelins come at the barbaric tribes. They stick in their weighted javelins. They pull, literally pull the shields right down, and then the Roman legions begin to come towards them. This happens for time after time after time. And Boudicca, she begins to realize that her army is depleting. They retreat, and they literally have to fight with their families at their backs to face the oncoming Roman soldiers. They lose the battle. Over 70,000 on the Roman side have died. Thousands upon thousands died from this barbaric rebels, as they called them. Boudicca goes down in history as a hero, a heroine. A heroine. But Nero removes Suetonius as governor, and he begins to put down revolt after revolt in the empire. And not only is that revolt just a sample of the headlines of the day, but think about an empire where murder is rampant, immorality is rampant, common occurrences are existing all over the empire between disputes between rich and poor. Hey, it almost sounds like what we could be describing some of the things happening today. This is the environment which Paul writes some of his most encouraging words to engage. So if we find ourselves thinking that we're kind of just here in the 21st century and the words of Paul don't have anything to do with us, think about the environment that they were going through back then. And the words that Paul writes to them are of utmost encouragement. We have discovered last week the mystery of God's will is that the plan of salvation, he, would, he works out everything according to his plan in our lives and in the lives of those in the world for the, each person in the human race. We can accept that plan by faith and say, God, work, work in me, come. I invite you to work in uh, your plan of salvation in my life. And then something happens when we do that. We become a spectacle for not only the people in the world, but for the spiritual forces of evil as well. And so I believe we can have certainty here and now in these uncertain times. I believe we can have assurance that our hearts are right with God and that we are going in the right direction and that we are, in a way, taking an active part in the plan of salvation. Satan will not be happy with it. He will treat it as re rebellion. He will treat it as revolt. But we must stand firm and move forward with Christ as our rear guard. And we will be victorious. And so I'll do a brief summary. Chapter 1, God has a plan of salvation to save each one of us. He's called us by name. He has said literally to each one of us, before the world ever began, I knew your name. Your name was not chosen by your parents. Yeah, in a way it was, but it was uttered by God way before the world ever began. And it's gone down through time, and he said to each one of us, follow me. And if you follow him, Ephesians 1 makes it clear that eventually he will unite all of our hearts and we'll all be one under Christ Jesus. And it's referencing that to the second coming. In Ephesians 2, which I've decided to skip over because the whole last year we've been talking about this chapter, God decides that if, if we want to have a part in that plan of salvation, He not only allows us through His kindness to understand it, but He also, he also recreates in us, causes a new creation, 
of spiritual force so that we then do the good works that he would have us to do. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And that we can be a part of his church regardless of our past. And now we get to chapter 3. We're going to discover how God's plan for his church is to reveal the mystery of Christ, not only to just earthly rulers and people, but also it will confound those in the heavenly places. All will see his wisdom. So let's go to Ephesians 3. For this reason, he's talking about the church being built up with Jews and Gentiles in it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, there I am, locked up. There I am. It seems like there's no hope. But there I am, prisoner not of Rome, but for Christ. I'm here because of Christ. I am in these circumstances because of Christ. Maybe if we were in the same situation, might be tempted to say, well, poor me, you know, or look what I'm going through, or man, they really beat me up last night, or why am I locked up away from my family struggling here? But Paul sees it as, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of those who are being reached. He talks about the Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that's his job. He's saying my goal is not anything else but to be a steward of God's grace, to, to, to dispense it as he would wish it to be dispensed. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Paul had visions and dreams. We also find that Damascus Road experience. He writes about those briefly before. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's saying, as you continue to read, you'll see what Christ has revealed to me. This, like we learned last week, is not something that's hidden from us. Christ wants to show it to us. He wants us to be his beloved and to give us insights that only, only a spiritual spouse could have. And Paul, that's what he's talking about here. Through Christ, we are now united with heaven, with our Father. And he's going to reveal that mystery. And what is that mystery? To be specific, he says in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That somehow Christ, through his love and his sacrifice, can unite everybody. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a mystery? Does that happen a lot in our world? We see some of it. We see people uniting for certain causes and certain conditions. But this is saying we are united spiritually from every background makes no difference. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's almost like he's reminiscing, speaking so highly of God here. God's kindness has brought me to this place. God's kindness has allowed me to share with you. And this is the beauty of it. He's bringing us all together. You know that oneness concept we keep talking about? I mean, it's just everywhere in the Scriptures. Everywhere. And it's no different here in Ephesians. And so the mystery is that Christ unites us all. You know why? Because we're all equal at the cross. How are we all equal at the cross? It's pretty simple. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. We're all dead at the cross. We don't exist anymore. Christ now lives in us. In the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are all now, in essence, according to heaven's record, Christ living in us. That's what produces these good works. And then he unites us not just with that knowledge, and we feel good about that, but he unites us in a mission to take this knowledge to the world. He goes on in verse 8, Ephesians 3, verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. 
to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration. We don't always like that word, but here it is. Administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God. Do you realize that that phrase, hidden in God, is synonymous with a heavenly council? There's no other place that you can find this a lot really broadened out like this, painted beautifully like this. This mystery was hidden in Christ. It was the plan of salvation, the Godhead themselves had it hidden, and now they are revealing it to us point by point so we can see how much God loves us. Who would even think we could even have the right to even see one bullet point in the plan of salvation? Why are we worthy? It's because God now treats us the way He treats Christ. He wants to show us so much. And Ephesians is very clear that even if I was to spend hours on this with you, we would not even scratch the surface. In the coming ages, it's going to take to really unpack what Paul's talking about here. And so Paul's just trying to give them a little taste. And I can't claim to unpack everything of Paul, let alone everything of God, because Paul himself is deep, and God is even deeper. But let's try. Let's look at some of these words. Saints. Paul says, you know what? I'm part of the body. We're all holy ones by God's grace. We're all saints by God's grace. We're all equal by God's kindness that He's shown to us. He doesn't change. He doesn't show extra special attention to one person over another. He treats us all as His children. Loves us all. Could you have me tell you which child I love the most in my kids? I mean, really? Do we think God's that way? That He somehow loves others more than the others? He doesn't do that. He loves us all. It's His kindness. It's who He is. There is no favoritism in Him. No shadow of turning. He didn't say, oh yeah, I like this one here because they're sitting on my knee, listen to me now, but when they turn their back and do something I don't like, I don't love them anymore. He still loves the wayward child. Riches of Christ, he links it all the way back to Christ and says the way that God has shown how much he's willing to pour out for us is through Jesus. Could heaven pour out any more than what happened through the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and his soon return? If it could, I don't know what it would look like. He has done it in such a beautiful way to show us this is how much I love you. Look at Christ. Spend time noticing what he has done. That is the riches of my grace. Administration of the mystery. (laughs) We don't like that word administration sometimes, but here it is. Administration of the mystery. It's this idea of building a house. There I was with Marie's dad. And I framed a couple of things uh, my day before that, but there's a sheep shed sitting out there still on my property. And it's mostly complete. But there you are at first, you know, you're starting with, you're leveling things out. And you know how it goes when you're building. You want things just right, walls level, all this, this, all these components. And I remember standing there after John and I had worked to a certain point, And I thought to myself, man, there's no way that I could have done this by myself. I mean, look at all of these little details that came right out of John's head. And John's like, well, I got some of those from your book. And I said, yeah, and you got some of them from your head because you know how to build stuff. This is what he's saying here is that, that I know exactly what I'm doing. Each one of you are a part of the church because it's my plan. How'd you all get there? I mean, think about just the backgrounds represented in this church here. How did we all get here this morning? 
wasn't for God finding a way to bring us together. And there's no, you can start saying, well, the chances are such and such that, that Murray, who grew up in Southern Oregon, would move all the way over to the Midwest and eventually find himself standing right here. I mean, yeah, you could probably do some mathematical equation. But that's only one of us. Imagine all of us here this morning. Add all that together. And you have God working out his providence, building the church up, bringing the ones that he needs here at this time for this work that he would have accomplished here. It's amazing to think about that. That's how Christ builds things up, comes directly from the mind of God to bring you and us here. His blueprint is revealed as we look at each other. Say that again. His blueprint is revealed as we look at each other. So when we quit looking at each other for love, out of love, that we begin to tear down what he wants to build up. And that's the saddest thing that can ever happen. It's like tearing a parent out of a family or tearing a child out of a family. It's not his plan. Our churches are faulty. We're faulty. We know that. But let's keep looking at each other with lives of love. And it says the wisdom of God might be made known through the church. <laughs> and you say, wow, yeah, let's all get together in a building and pay lots of bills to keep a building open. Is that what he's talking about here? No, he's talking about the lives represented here. That us, this is only part of the equation on Sabbath morning. We all know that. You know, Sabbath school is part of the equation. Everything's part. But our lives through the church, through each one of us who's been called, the church are the called out ones, the summoned ones. We come together to encourage each other corporately. That's why I come here. I don't know why you're coming here, but I'm, that's why I'm coming here. Is that I want, to be, I want to be an encourager and be encouraged. And you can't tell me that by singing those songs and by giving my, my all that I had today to give to God in that offering and that beautiful prayer, you cannot tell me that my heart was not united to God. Before I got here, it wasn't, I'll tell you that. I had spent time alone with God. I had spent time just trying to focus on Him. But there was a spiritual force of darkness that I could not battle alone. And it wasn't until I sat in that pew back there during Sabbath school, spent time again in prayer, that it actually lifted. And then Uriel comes along and he sings all these, brings us all these beautiful songs. Didn't you want to just stand up and march up to heaven right then? I mean, this is what the wisdom is. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, for people of all kinds of backgrounds and persuasions to get together because in the world they see that as a recipe for conflict. But God sees it as a way of uniting everybody. And it says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will see this wisdom. Not just me standing up here looking at it thinking, wow, God, you're amazing. But heavenly authority, rulers in the heavenly places. What is that talking about? Well, let's put it together. The mission of the church is clear. We accept the plan of salvation. We're created for good works. That changes us. People start noticing like, I didn't know why I wanted to cook that meal. I mean, we had already had a huge busy day, but all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, let's do it. Where did that love come from? Where did that? That's from God. He was in our hearts. You know that peaceful feeling you get when you're doing God's work? It's like, God, you're actually using me? Well, that's what happens when we're created for good works. We don't realize the source every time something's happening, but all of a sudden we look back and we're like, wow, you used me to bless somebody. And so that's being created for good works. And sometimes it's more intentional, especially when you first start being a Christian. You're like, okay, Lord, what, is, what does that look like? You know, you, you look at the Ten Commandments, you look at different things. But 
But really, it becomes natural. It should become natural at some point to just do things. And we were part of a group of believers we, we see here in chapter 3. And then the church shows the wisdom of God to everyone. That's really the mission of the church so far in Ephesians. And so the church shows the wisdom of God to all. Who does that include? Well, let's look at this text. We're actually going to compare two of them. Here's the one we're looking at, Ephesians 3. The wisdom of God will be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Compare that to chapter 6, our scripture reading. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In the heavenly places. Now, this word made known. Alan and I were talking about a Greek word in the the back there. I do some more research on it. But here, it's really simple. Made known. It's like you're a passive observer. It's like, you know how you're, you're standing there and something happens right in front of your eyes and you can't believe it's happening? It just happened to you? You ever happened to you? Like maybe you're watching, um, some of you probably watch passively as, as that whole fight happened in the behind the church here. You're like, really? Is the pastor and the deacon wrestling that guy to the ground? I mean, whoa, you just can't help, it just, just happened, right? You had no control over it, it just, right in front of your face. That's what we're talking about here. It's like, not necessarily the pastor and all that, but it's a spiritual fight going on here, and the forces of darkness are watching as they really can't even lay hands on the church, church, and they're watching passively as the church keeps marching forward and conquering this world for Christ. And they're like, did that just happen? We had better rally some more troops here. I mean, they, they can't stop the unstoppable. That's us. That's us, united with Christ. And so they have, to, they have to literally watch as God's wisdom takes place in front of them. And, and it's, it's almost as bad as it's a TV channel that you can't change. And it's right there, and they're watching, and they can't control. They're just, they're just like, well, somebody turn it off. Somebody, and they can't do anything. Passive. Whoever this is, is passive. And we know it's not God. We know it's not the heavenly forces. So it's got to be the evil forces. And they watch, even though they want to interrupt, they watch as God works his will out and they can't stop it. That's what it's talking about here. So it's brought to their minds unmistakably or unavoidably. There's no way of avoiding it. They watch as God's wisdom, is, his plan is fulfilled through the church and they can do nothing about it. They will try, but they really can do nothing about it if we could stay united with Christ. And so if you want to see the Greek for it, just know where I was coming from. Here it is. Ephesians 3. I don't always do this, but I'm doing it for this one. You notice the red word there, our case? Here it is again in Ephesians 6. Exousiais, there it is again. Okay, and there it is there. Apuranois, right there, and you got it over there. But it adds something here. Not only will the spiritual forces of evil who have their, like the prince of the air, Satan trying to rule the air, right? The heavenly places. Not only will they see, but the people in the world will see. God is going to work through the church so that the people around us will take notice of the church. Why is it not happening now? Because if we're not united and staying connected with Christ, it will never happen the way God would have it intended to happen. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan for each one of us. Our goal is to discover it, stay connected with Christ and with each other, and unitedly go forward. If we do not, Your church is nothing but a whimper down the road that happens on Sabbath morning. 
No one even hears a word coming from this building. It opens up, cars drive in, drive out. Nobody knows anything. And I don't know about you, but I'm not content with that. If you're content with that, you might want to find another church. I'm at the point right now where I'm saying, if you're content with just business as usual here at Anderson, I would say find another church. They'll entertain you somewhere else. We're not here to entertain you. You wonder why the, scripture, the sermons are so scripturally based? It's because this is how God speaks to me, and I'm just sharing it with you, and I'm saying, this is what we're about. It's not about things that have happened in the past in this building. It's not about agendas that have taken place. It's about God's agenda for us now and in the future. And if you don't want to be a part of it, and you don't want to accomplish that mission, I would say, I'm not taking the banner down. I would say, you take your banner and take it somewhere else. This is the banner that we're focusing on. And you wonder why I'm coming across so strong with that. I'm not yelling at this point. So I could come across even stronger. Jesus' seven woes and everything to the Pharisees were a lot stronger than I come across. I'm just saying, it's time. It's time to move forward. Otherwise, God's purpose and his glory will not take place. And his purpose here, Paul uses, he's so specific. I mean, I wish I knew Greek the way he does. He just says, God's purpose is that each one of us would be part of the worship of God. It's like the temple in the Old Testament. Each item had a purpose. And he uses that same word, the equivalent from the Old Testament. Each one had a purpose. All the way down to the sacrifice without blemish, the candlesticks, what kind of oil they put in it. Everything had a purpose. And he's saying, all of us have a purpose. And what does he say? This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. There I am, preacher of the gospel, locked up. Don't lose heart at that on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Why is that? Paul sees that he's not the only candlestick on the candelabra there. Okay? He's not the only piece of bread in the bread of presence there. Okay? He's, he's, not the, he's not the only piece of furniture in God's house. So he recognizes that God's using everybody. And that's for God's glory. And you get to chapter 4 and you see exactly what he means by that. We'll come to that later on. People are going to see the character of Jesus in Paul. Glory, doxology we get the word from. They're going to be seeing God's glory through how Paul suffers. And how even in his suffering, he says, you see Jesus? <laughs> Look at, how am I getting through this? Surely the building should come down. But there is a hidden reserve that Paul has that he keeps looking up and keeps pointing them to his beautiful Savior. And so we will see what happens to each other. And Paul says, you'll see what happens to me and you will praise God. You will compliment God. You will say, God, you're so good. Because if Paul hadn't been locked up, some of them never would have been reached in, in that place. He would not have even had the time going from church plant to church plant to write the letter if he hadn't been locked up at that, at that season in his life. And so we look at it and we say, wow, God, we're a spectacle for your glory. Now, young people, here's your answer. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. That's for your FBI sheet. What are we a spectacle of? Who are we a spectacle of? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. 
stewards of the mysteries of God, and we're fools for Christ's sake, is the heading in mind. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, you were already full, you were already rich, you've reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, and that we also might reign with you. We're all children of the king. Verse 9, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. So he's saying, I'm willing to be made a spectacle if that means somehow you will be drawn closer to Christ. And now, who are they a spectacle of? Does it say there? Angels and men. Now we know there are evil men and evil angels. We know there are good, good people and good angels. So what are we talking about? Well, from the previous text, we know that it's, it was mentioning the ones who are the, uh, under the rule, the prince of the air, the, the heavenly realms. That's Satan's. So Satan will notice, but we're going to find that God doesn't leave us alone. That there are also, we're also a spectacle to our heavenly family. And our heavenly family will not leave us as orphans. They will unite in a mission to help us in so many ways. Paul says that, I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word spectacle is theater, amphitheater. Angels and men, not just those on heaven's side. There are, there's a controversy going on here, if you will. There's a battle going on between good and evil. And you've got two sides of this equation. But I can tell you, it's a whole lot more peaceful and a whole lot more wonderful to think that not only do we have the numbers on our side if we're on God's side. Because think about it. Who had the flaming sword back there in the garden? I mean, you find him appearing later on to Joshua, the, the commander of the Lord's armies, and he could take out everybody, just himself, with the flaming sword. So if we just have that guy, we're good. But he's got, according to Revelation, two-thirds of the stars that did not fall. And so many are going to plot, strategize, and sabotage God's work. But we don't have to be a part of that group. We can be a part of the group that turns to God and says, I want to be a spectacle for good so that people will be drawn closer to Jesus. And in that way, church is a spectator sport. Not just to sit there and all of that, but each one of us, as we leave this place, heaven is watching. The forces of evil are watching. And it's really our choices that we make that will determine the outcome in our lives. And so I want to be on the side of good. Because, you know, back then, when they were dragging the Christians into the Colosseum for a spectacle, an a ancient form of entertainment and TV, what was it for? Was it for good or for evil? They thought for evil. And can you imagine being the Christian smeared with pitch and they light you on fire like a torch? Can you imagine being the one who has to literally shield your kids from the line that comes and as your bones crunch, you wonder if what's going to happen to your babies? I mean, can you imagine being there? At the time, you might wonder if it's for good. But people watching, though they came there for evil, they couldn't help but be touched by the love that was in these hearts of these ones who were dying. And so it turned out for good. And some people like to deny that that ever happened. And I remember reading a source on the internet, you can find it here. Uh, they, they tried to make it seem like the Christians who died there in the Colosseums really didn't take place. But in the same article, they say it did. 
So you, you can go figure. We know it's a fact. It did happen. We have sources that prove it. First Christian martyrs at the Roman Colosseum, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. In 107, he says, the emperor Trajan came to Antioch and forced the Christians to choose between the pagan Roman gods and death. Ignatius refused, and the emperor condemned him to death by being torn to pieces by wild beasts at Rome. Damnatio ad bestia. The wild beasts left nothing of his body except a few bones. Known as a place of entertainment and execution, they say, yet they want to deny that those type of things happened. The Colosseum could hold an estimated between 50 and 80,000 spectators, was used for gladiatorial contests, public spectacles such as mock sea battles, animal hunts, and you notice, they kind of throw this one in there. This article didn't believe that they were used for executions, but they say later on, executions. Who, who were they executing? Criminals, and if you were considered a criminal back then, you would be executed there. Christians were considered criminals though they say there were no Christians who were martyred there. They admit that it was used for executions. And we find records that the Christians were considered criminals and were executed. So where were they executed? It had to be there, and they had to be made a spectacle. And so there they are, and it's the movies of the day, and they're watching as people are dying there. But that's the way Christians have always given their all for Jesus. Look at John the Baptist. There he is. He's pointing people to Jesus. You think everything is going fine. Then he must increase, but I must decrease. He gets his head cut off. Right? For, for the lust of a king. And then you go on down through time, you get James, and there he is. The church is growing. It seems like everything is going fine. And then all of a sudden, the state turns upon the church and kills James off, beheads him. And you go on down the line, you get Stephen, who, who amongst the, the, the religious of the day is condemned. Looks up and sees the Son of God. And they stone him to death. Paul, who wrote this letter, would become a spectacle of death and many others down through the centuries. To have that type of commitment means a commitment now. It means a commitment in our daily lives. And I can tell you right now, it's, it's a whole lot harder to stay connected and focused through all the busyness. If you're put in a situation where you've got to choose between Christ and the other options, I mean, that would be, to me, cut and dry, it would seem. But it's through our daily struggles that we also must maintain that distinction that I'm going to follow Christ no matter what. I'm going to be His spectacle for good and read this quotation, the church is God's fortress, his city of refuge, which he holds in a revolted world. This world is in rebellion, not God. And Satan is trying to put down God, but really he will be put down in the end. Any betrayal of the church is treachery to him who has bought mankind with the blood of his only begotten son. When we betray each other, it's like being a Judas reenactment. And so we must focus on Christ and not become that type of person in the church. So to betray the church, to fight against the church, uh, let's just take an example there. Let's just say I have a particular teaching I like to push on the church. If the church is not ready to receive it, leave it. Did you hear me? If there's a particular teaching that you have or I have, and I've got some that are somewhere on the bookshelf that I've studied out and I see them as truth, but if the church is not ready to receive it, I leave it. And the reason why is because we are a body. And the body works together. We have a whole history of that in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Where we at first didn't understand the Sabbath truth. We believed Jesus was coming, and the Sabbath was being studied out, and eventually people accepted it, and it became standard part of our foundation, of our beliefs. And then later on, you find other beliefs that we restudied, and, and there they are in our 28 fundamental beliefs, right? And so, as, as a church, 
We do, I don't fight against the church. I work with the church. And so that's what we're talking about here is this is a revolted world. I don't want to betray the church. I don't want to divide the church. I don't want to cause disunity in the church because we are all going together with Christ. From the beginning, faithful souls have constituted the church on earth. And she's not just saying since we had bricks and mortar buildings. She's saying since the beginning of time, God's had his people. And you can go down and begin with Adam and work your way all the way down through time. Those are his chosen ones, his people. He's called them by name. Faithful souls who have constituted the church on earth. In every age, the Lord has his, had his watchmen who have borne a faithful testimony to the generation in which they lived. These sentinels gave the message of warning, and when they were called to lay off their armor, when they put their swords down, others took up the work. God brought these witnesses into covenant relation with himself. That's really the bottom line here. Each person in the church that is truly part of the church has a covenant relationship with God. You know how deep that is? That's like Jonathan and David deep. And when I look in the mirror, and when I get up in the morning, I say, Lord, reveal your presence to me through your word and through your workings in my life. So I will stay committed to you and you, you with me. Like David and Jonathan had that friendship that was beyond, beyond just human bounds. It was, it was a covenant before God. I want that with my God too. And so that covenant relationship with himself, that's the church really. Uniting the church on earth with the church, where? In heaven. That's where Paul's going next in Ephesians. He has sent forth his angels to minister to his church, and the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against his people and will not prevail against his people. That's why Paul goes on and says, for this cause he, God, is glorified. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There is only one name in this universe that everybody is united under, and that is, we find, Christ Jesus. This is the way Paul words it. God himself, the I Am, the Almighty. Okay? This is the name. There is no other family. We're either in that family or we're opposing that family. And we can look at our society today and see what Satan would like to do to, to any understanding of family so that we couldn't even read this text without having our past come up. But set aside our past and realize that God does have an ideal family. It involves each one of you and me. And it's not just us in this world, but all heaven is watching. They're all willing to help us get to Jesus and see him face to face that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. So what happens if we, we recognize that, yeah, we're a spectator, but we're trusting God and we're part of his family? Well, we're strengthened. Christ dwells in our hearts. We're grounded in love. We know the love of Christ. We're filled with the fullness of God. There's no room for Satan in this heart if Christ fills it. And so others are watching. The whole heavenly family's on our side. And what happens is, I don't know about you, but when I... Ask Christ into my life each day. Anew, I renew my covenant with Him. I mean, just sit there and think about, there you are looking at the Word of God, and I'm journaling, you know, you're journaling over here, and, and God begins to, to point things out to you in the text and say, Murray, this is what you need to really hear this morning. 
That's a real peaceful feeling I have when that takes place. And I, at times it, it almost overwhelms me with his goodness that he would, he would attend to me that closely like a friend. I have no friends like that. No friends that deep. We're becoming friends over time here, but this friendship with God brings peace like no other friendship. And so Jesus himself was made a spectacle, wasn't he? They thought that he was their sport, that he was going to be crushed the way they wanted to. And so as I think of myself as being a spectator sport for Satan, he thinks that he has got me. I think of Jesus and how he loved me. He gave himself for me. And it says in Colossians, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he, he took away their weapons. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Do you realize that Satan has been disarmed? And the only weapons he can grasp now are the ones that you give him and that I give him. I'll say that again. Satan has been disarmed at the cross and the only weapons he now has are the ones that we as human beings give him to operate with. It's like, here, here's my sword. Oh, here, here's my, my arrow and, and weapons. You say, well, yeah, that's not totally true. That's just a figure of speech. Think about it. A death blow was dealt to him at the cross. According to the first prophecy of the Bible, his head was crushed. He cannot heal himself. I mean, you got, spiritually, a battle blow was dealt to him at the cross. And it's by invitation. Look through every story of the Bible where he seems to be working strongly. You're going to find that's because somebody invited him to come into that. That's how we get demon possession. That's how we get people who are his agents, even in the church, is that they have been groomed over time. He has violated them by their own eventual choice. And then he uses them to hurt other people in the church, to become spiritual terrorists. And so I choose... Paul says, I will not give in to carnal flesh. I will not give in to those temptations. Why? Because he knows that it invites Satan to then begin to use him. And he knows then that that could draw people away from Jesus. So we don't want to be those weapons. And really in the church, if we invite him into the church, into our homes and then into our buildings, then Christ will not triumph over him the way that he should. He'll work it out eventually, and he'll, he'll work his will out in this place and in our hearts but it would be a whole lot more decisive victory if we would invite Christ instead of Satan into our midst. And so I think we are trying to do that here, and I'm glad for that, and I'm glad for our focus. So the spectators will be confounded as they watch. All of a sudden, there's Jesus, and it looks like the lion of 1 Peter 5, 8 has got him there, and he's tearing Jesus apart on the cross. And then, yeah, is he dead? Is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. And you can imagine Satan just, hallelujah, pray, his own little praise, right? They do use some of our songs in their Satan worship songs. And so they're just like, yes, amen, let it be. And then the ground begins to tremble, not only at the cross, but at the resurrection. And it'd almost be like watching a lion that had crushed somebody in the gladiator arena all of a sudden just fall back. And that person take and just <laughs> defeat the lion. And the spectators are watching and saying, that's not supposed to happen. But it did. Christ literally took everything that Satan could throw at him. And then he arose victorious, took him down, and crushed the head of the serpent.
That's a decisive victory. And the spectators, I imagine, Satan and all his cronies are just confounded that from that point on, if we would all have faith in that victory, not just of his death, but his burial and his resurrection, his soon return, that he would be confounded in every one of our lives if we would focus on that. So Christ did not tell his disciples that their work would be easy. He showed them the vast confederacy of evil arrayed against them. They would have to fight against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But they would not be left to fight alone. He assured them that he would be with them. I mean, come on, this this is a guy who crushes the enemy. If he's with me, does the enemy stand a chance? I mean, it's it's like a rerun. Rerun the tape. Here it is. See Jesus? Quack. That's what can happen. It's amazing it can happen on a daily basis. I used to watch uh, professional wrestling when I was a kid, and I'd rewind the tape and watch that body slam again and whatever, and the pinning, right? Well, this is, this is what we're talking about here. Is a battle has taken place, and literally, it's almost like to him, he's watching passively as in each one of our lives, Jesus' victory is replayed in our lives. He would be with them, and that if they would go forth in faith, they would move under the shield omnipotence. Remember that opening battle story we talked about, how they had the shields there, and they vastly outnumbered the enemy, and unfortunately those rebel forces, they faced an enemy that had javelins that were weighted, and they would pull their shields down. Well, here there is no way to have our shields pulled down if God is right in front of us. Only thing we would have when we we say, okay, God, I can handle this on my own. Step aside. I mean, what kind of foolishness would that be? Well, I'd rather move under the shield of omnipotence if I have faith. I will move under the shield of omnipotence. He bade them be brave and strong. Okay, so here here God is. He's facing the enemy for you, literally. You're under the shield of him. And can you imagine like in David's time where they turn back to back and they'd be hacking at the enemy and the enemy's like, yeah, this guy's getting weak. And then all of a sudden they'd turn and he'd face the the other guy that was at his back. Imagine that. That's what we have talk, we're talking about here. Just when Satan thinks he has you, put faith up in God, and then all of a sudden turn, and there you find he's facing the line of the tribe of Judah. And there is no, there is no victory for evil in that face of that line. Be brave and be strong, for one mightier than the angels would be in their ranks. The general, the general of the armies of heaven, He made full provision for the prosecution of their work. All the provisions are there. He took upon himself the responsibility of its success. This is God's work. It is him who's going to be successful. So long as they obeyed his word, worked in connection with him, stay connected. I keep saying that over and over again. Murray, stay connected, stay connected. And you hear it yourselves. If you stay connected with him, they could not fail. Go to all the nations, he bade them. Go to the farthest part of the inhabitable globe and be assured that my presence will be with you even there. Labor in faith and confidence, for the time will never come when I will forsake you. He will never turn his back on us. question is, Murray, will you turn your back on him? And right now I stand here and say, no. May it never be. I will be with you always, helping you to perform your duty, guiding, comforting you. Someone had prayer with me this morning. This was very comforting. Sanctifying, sustaining you, giving you success, and speaking words that shall draw the attention of others to heaven. And then when the victories start happening, we're like, there he is. He did it. 
And so the evil forces are watching and working to destroy humanity, and they especially want to destroy the church. But God wants to use his united church to reveal the mystery of his grace so that everyone, everyone might see his wisdom. And now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, Paul says, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Miller translation, glory to God through all generations forever. Let it be. Let it be so. Glory to God through all generations forever and ever and ever. Let it be so. So that's a time that Paul's looking forward to where there'd be no more spectator sports. There'd be no more watching because now everybody will see exactly God's plan come to fruition. Evil forces will be vanquished. This world will be his. No more tears, no more pain. And I will say, and he will say, I have loved you all your days. Well done. You put your sword down now. It's over with. You don't have to fight anymore. And we're thankful that someday soon we will lay down the sword, we will be in your presence, and there will be no more spectator sport. Satan will be confounded forever. Your victory will be solidified, sealed in our hearts forever. And we will go forth into eternity praising you. And Lord, if you would like, uh, we would be glad to tell the whole universe about you forever. So Lord, give us that faithfulness now in our hearts to stay united with you. Keep revealing your presence to us. Guide us in return to invite you into our lives each day until that day when we see you face to face. We'll be careful to give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.